welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Mad in America. This is your host for today, Ayurdhidhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a spotlight interviewer for Mad in America. Our guest today is a leading figure in user-led research, and so we are pretty thrilled to have her. Dr. Diana Rose is currently an honorary distinguished professor at the Australian National University. She was also the world's first professor in user-led research, something I didn't know, uh, while at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience in King's College, London. Dr. Rose has written numerous, numerous uh, uh, papers in, in academic journals and book chapters, and her new book is coming out. Um, but what's most important here is that she has always been an activist as well as an academic. And today we will talk about all of those parts of her work, her life, and her career. Dr. Rose, welcome to Mad in America. Thank you. All right. Let's begin. So um, all this expertise in service user and survivor research, could you tell us what service user and survivor research is? What's the difference? Well, I think it's it's everything from systems like the academy and the voluntary sector and user groups to language, which I think is very important, to individual persons who embody these things. Everything is done from the user standpoint of being both a survivor and a researcher. So it's not an additive thing. It's not you are a survivor and you're a researcher, but you are a survivor and activist and you use those experiences to inform everything you do. So it's a synthetic thing, not an additive thing. So what are some of the challenges that you face when you do research like this? I mean, you have to take people's you know, things we take for granted when it comes to research and question those. What are some of the challenges that you have faced? And like just some of the victories in this kind of research that you've experienced? I think the worst thing is false welcoming. So you get seduced into thinking that they really want you there. And actually it's for their benefit. Um and and that that's a lesson that I learned pretty early. Pretty early on. Um, but there are challenges of epistemology, there are challenges of method, there are challenges of working together with people who are not survivors. Um, there are challenges of the fact that psychiatry and the side disciplines are empiricists and they don't deal in concepts. And I think concepts are very important. Could you tell us what you, when you say um, concepts are really important, what do you mean by concepts out here? Well, epistemic injustice. So the idea that most people have the status of knowers, they, they are people who, who can know, and mad people are positioned as not being able to know, as not credible knowers. Um, and also that they don't have a discourse of their own. So we're all constantly falling back into the discourse of psi, because it's very difficult to articulate your experiences if, if you're systematically discouraged doing that, both by the context of psi and by individualizing you so that you can't get together and collectively address things that. 
um, it makes me think of how um, even the language we use, right? When, when a person is talking about, when a service user or a survivor is talking about their experience, the minute we use the language of psychology, it it kind of folds it into this narrative. So I am really scared this will happen to me. It turns into the patient sounds paranoid about something, right? And we might use this in the most nonchalant way without really thinking about it. But but these these narratives have a really huge effect on people. Uh, suddenly being scared because of your experience with the mental health system turns into paranoia, which is situated in you. That's what I mean by individualization. So say a patient comes to a a doctor and complains about their landlord. Now there are there are psychiatrists who will write to the landlord. But at the same time, and most people don't write to the landlord, they're thinking, hmm, is this complaint paranoia? Hmm. Is this complaint a hallucination? So they're Ripping people away from their material and symbolic environment and just focusing on what's going on internally in their head. I actually think psychology is worse than psychiatry when it comes to this. I have to agree with you there. I really do. <laughs> I mean, even early in my own experience in life, um, I had a friend going through um, what we now know as akathisia, antipsychotic you know, experience and withdrawal. And like the, the burning in the body, the everything. And we didn't know anything about it then. So when he was talking about these symptoms, I just thought he was having hallucinations. And uh, like 10 years later, when, you know, I got into all of this, I was I was barely 19 at that point. And I, I was like, oh, my God, he was not having hallucinations. This is this is a cathedral. This is what happens with antipsychotics. You feel like your body is burning. There are pins and needles. And so it's just psychology allows you with its language kind of to, you know, capture that experience and turn it into something else, like you said, to individualize it. And what's interesting, what's interesting for me is that, well, this is years ago when I was in the old asylums, but the nurses never told you these things. So I would get restless legs. I couldn't sit still. And it was the other patient that explained to me that it was a side effect of the drug that I was taking. And that, that was sort of beginning of realising that other patients knew an awful lot um, and, and were willing to share it and that the nurses just kind of let you think it was part of your illness. So tell me some of the typical challenges, challenges that service users and survivors have when we, you know, when they try to participate. Like there is a whole new research we've set up and we're like, yay, this is going to be service user led and uh, let's invite all the participants who are survivors. But we we what are the challenges that they face? Like what are some of the things that we don't even think about are issues that we have to deal with? One of the things that I can't stand, um, and I, I this may not apply to nurses and social worker academics, but it definitely applies to psychologists psychologists and psychiatrists, is that they see you through a double lens. And they're interested in your diagnosis, they're interested in what's the matter with you. And so your identity as a researcher is, is sort of moved away. And therefore, especially when I did the ECT work, it was all, why is she have ECT? Mm. What's, what's the matter with her? Uh, I mean, they don't say it out loud, but you can tell by the body language and the words they use that they're basically seeing you as a patient. Um, and that's very, very disheartening. 
it's complicated because you want this double identity, like I said, this synthetic double identity, but you don't want to be reduced to patienthood as conceived by psychiatrists or psychologists. And it's none of their business what's the matter with me. So tell me, how do service users then negotiate? How do they deal with all of this stigma? Even though researchers and academics in the field might say, well, you know, we're coming in with open arms and open minds. And there is still a lot of, like you said, there are a lot of assumptions they have and a lot of stigma that they carry. So how do usually service users, when they're trying to participate as researchers, how do they deal with that in a space? What do they do? We did some work on ECT. So it was commissioned by the government and there was some hostility towards it by the steering group, which was a lot of psychs and methodologists, mainly quantitative. Um, so I thought, well, we're just going to do a really good job. They asked us to do a systematic review of consumers' perspectives on ECT. So I just thought, I'll show them. Um, and we did. I can do research. <laughs> and um, they were a bit surprised. There was one meeting they said, well, we won't take the service users first because they'll have nothing to say. And then we did our presentation, me and my colleagues. We had both had had ECT. So they were a bit gobsmacked. You can get very demoralized being treated this way. I mean, it's difficult because people need their jobs. So they can't be super duper critical without getting into trouble. Um, and some people, I think they just decide to play the game or they might even genuinely want to maximize their research experience at the expense of their survival experience. I would, I would call that user research and I would call troublemaker survival research. <laughs> people get sucked in. I've been sucked in. So tell us, in, in all this user research that you have come across and all of it that you've conducted, um, in the field of psychology, right, what's the most important user research you have ever seen? Something that really changed things or was important? Well, there's one recent one that I think was very brave. It was looking at hate crime against people with mental health diagnosis. And most mainstream researchers wouldn't touch that with the barge pole. After all, we're the ones that are supposed to be violent. Um, and it was a small, intensive, user-led interview study. Um, and it really brought to light what people have to suffer um, just because they've got the diagnosis. Um, the kind of abuse that they get, the being burgled, having feces put through the door, this kind of thing. And it hasn't had an awful lot of publicity, but I think it is a really good piece of research. Uh, we, we, you kind of already touched upon it, right? Uh, sometimes service users are um, sucked in, is what you said. So let's talk a little bit about that. How can research be conducted in which that does not happen? Can you say, uh, talk about your experience with that? How does that happen? If you've seen that happening and how can we do research in which we don't do that? Well, it's happened to me. And in the end, I just left the project. 
and took my name off. You never take your name off a paper in academia. But I did. And I said I didn't want to be an author on any more papers from that project. Um, to begin with, that because I was out of work for 10 years and living on benefits, I was just so happy to have a job. And I thought, well, this is okay. This is about social stuff and all the rest of it. But it turned out to be atheoretical to a ridiculous extreme, all about measurement. Um, and um, they just wanted a badge, you know. And to an extent, they got it for a while. And then, you know, I let, walked with my feet. What are some of the ways, like consequences, that we bulldoze the voice of service users in this research? Well, if you're medicated, you're a bit like a zombie. Not that easy to get up at half past seven in the morning. There's something that I call co-option. You know what I mean? I mean, I think power comes in lots of different forms. I'm a bit of a Foucauldian in, in that sense. Everything from coercion to co-option um, to seduction to, to being generous, doing new things. Yes, I think co-option happens happened with this idea of recovery. It started out with service users and then it got turned into a treatment by psychologists and psychiatrists, individualized instead of collectivized. Peer support's another one. So peer support used to be groups where people talked about their experiences and reflected upon them and thought about them. And now you get peer support workers and there's like one at most two. And they have a very, very difficult job because they're there because they've got experience, but they're supposed to be further along in their recovery journey. So they've got to disclose something but they mustn't break boundaries. But where's the boundary? You, know, they, they, you can't pin it down. You, you don't know what you can disclose and what you shouldn't. There are people who argue that now there are only certain stories that are allowable, and those are recovery stories. So the only story you can tell is a recovery story. And so you just delete you know, the distress, the abuse, the violence. And then if you don't, if you can't tell a recovery story, you feel guilty because you haven't recovered. One more thing you fail at. Um, and, and and when you see, you know, like peer, peer supporters and peer counselors are supposed to have be further down the road on recovery, uh, it made me think like that is such a difficult thing to pin down. I mean, we can barely pin down who, what is a mental disorder who has a mental disorder, let alone who is who's recovering. So it was supposed to be an antidote to the biochemical model and the idea that psychoses were inevitably degenerative. And it was supposed to be an antidote for that, to say that you can give people hope and they can live meaningful lives even in the presence of, and this word is used, disease. But it just became, it's become so individualized and so normalized. You know, you're supposed to choose your own goals, but some goals are off limits. I mean, if you prefer your own company to other people, that's not good enough because you're supposed to have social networks. 
if you give up looking for a job because you've got a rubbish CV and all the jobs are terrible, that's not allowed because you're supposed to be working. And so the normal autonomous choosing, self-determinating, person in social networks, that's that's what a recovered person is, according to this particular model. Yeah, I know uh, there have been some significant criticisms of the recovery model and what it was supposed to be and what it has turned out to be. So that really adds to that. Thank you. So when it comes to epistemic injustice, right, the fact that certain voices are prioritized over other people's voices, what has been the most awful, the most egregious example you have seen in which, you know, we marginalize the voices of service users or survivors? Well, there's a paper. Its objective was to find out why people from so-called BAME, Black and Minority Ethnic, don't take their medicines. And the conclusion of the research was that it was down to BAME family culture. But if you look at the actual quotations, which were in the discussion for some reason, um, people were talking about poverty, they were talking about colonialism, they were talking about violence on the housing estates where they lived. But they just weren't heard because the, the researchers were looking for a reason why they didn't take their medication. They were not listening to the stories of, of distress. I wrote a blog about this paper. I thought it was one of the worst pieces of, and it was supposed to be co-production. Yeah, it was bad. And what, one other example from my own work, we were doing some work on inpatient wards and we ran some focus groups of people who'd been on inpatient wards for the previous two years. And one guy told this story. He said, the nurses were talking to me about me behind my back in a language that they thought I couldn't understand. And he said, but I could understand that I can speak 12 languages. So I wrote this quote in the paper, in a paper, and the principal investigator said, you can't put that in. That can't be true. People like him can't speak to him. I said, he comes from Kenya. In Kenya, there are lots of languages. They're semantically and syntactically quite similar, some of them, and some are different. It's quite common to be able to speak 12 languages. I had to take the quote out. That is a terrific example of somebody from a culture that usually speaks one language has no concept that other people can. I mean, I I can speak three, I can understand about four, and that's on the low side for many people across the world. So that is a really good example of epistemic injustice. Thank you for bringing that um, up. I also want to kind of comment on what you talked about in the family culture part, right? Because I have a lot of students who, um, they hear this all the time. Uh, people of color don't seek mental health help because family culture. People of color don't seek mental health treatment because family culture. And it's taken me years to deconstruct that idea that what makes you think that the help has been useful, then I have to like give them a history lesson of how psychology has treated Black people. I mean, Jonathan Metzl's book is great. And I was like, why would you want, if this was your experience with the setup, the mental health system, and I know, I think Helena Hansen has done some really good work with this. Why would you want to go to a practitioner? It's just so Eurocentric apart from anything else which I think most of the most of the scientists are really Eurocentric and they're white, basically. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. 
I'll move to the next question, which is a little more personal and is how, what's your journey? How did you end up studying these things? How did you end up here with these interests? I wasn't, as we say in Scotland, to the manor born. Um, so my mum was what they call in, in Scotland, in service, which meant she was a maid for a very rich family. Um, and my dad, before he went, got for a butcher. Um, and university was like, it wasn't for girls. Um, it was very patriarchal and it was very xenophobic. Um, so I decided I would get myself educated, <laughs> get away from it. Because um, I met some people who were going to university. I thought, I'll give that a shot. And I sat the finals of my first degree in, in a mental hospital. It um, was my first admission. They gave me insulin coma therapy. And then I moved to London. My interest in languages, my first job was in a sort of area called sociolinguistics, language in use, language in context. Um, then I had a teaching, a lecturing job for 10 years and I was medically retired because I couldn't hide it anymore. It was just bananas uh, at work. And so I lived on benefits for 10 years. And during those 10 years, I got involved in activism. I got involved in the survivor movement, which really changed everything for me. And I was told I should never try to get a job again, not like today. Um, and then my local user group did a research project and I had some research skills. Um, on the back of that, I got a six-month contract at a NGO. And then I, st I stayed there for five years. And then I moved to the Institute of of psychiatry. And as I say, I was so relieved to be back in a university that I was taken in for a bit. And I'm not pregnant. Um, but I was. And then gradually I began to like see what was going on. Um, and I didn't like it. And to be quite honest, I'm much happier now I'm retired. I wrote my book once I was retired. And I could say what I liked. So uh, let's go back to this idea of knowledge co-production. And we've kind of talked about it, right? Can you briefly tell our uh, listeners what is knowledge co-production? But also, uh, for example, I know you have extensively written about that it's a, it's a complicated process, right? It's very in trend. Everybody wants to do it. Everybody wants to talk about it. But um, there are just, it's complicated. And can you tell us a little bit about what knowledge co-production is and what are some of these difficulties and complications that you talk about? Well, I don't think you can do it in mental health um, because ultimately your colleague or a colleague of your colleague has the right to take away your liberty and treat you involuntarily. I don't think ultimately that co-production is possible. Um, between survivors and mainstream researchers. I mean, there was a very, very hierarchical um, unit where I worked. I'll give you an example. With these big, very big projects, you know, with loads of investigators, sometimes you have something called analysis days. And so all the data's in, and you go away for two or three or four days as a group to analyze the data. 
it's very strange because there's a certain sociality to eat breakfast with the boss and drinks up at the, at the end of the day and and all that. But in the actual meetings, the principal of the investigator calls the shots and tells the statisticians what tests to run. They run test after test after test. The null hypothesis is supported every time. Everybody's getting really depressed. Um, and then, whoops, a significant result. Whoops of joy around the table. And then the paper that's produced makes it look as if seamlessly this conclusion was arrived at. And all this messy underneath is invisible. You would never know that there had been these events. I mean, it might sound like I'm exaggerating, but... No, I've I've read enough about data torture to know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, 20 non-significant results, one significant result, that's what you would expect, a chance. And then I discovered science and technology studies. So that kind of consolidated it. It bore me that science is not pure, science is not objective, science is not neutral. That's generalizable, scaling up. Side disciplines then deal in concepts. They think the data speaks for itself, believe it or not. I remember having a, a debate with a very high-profile psychiatrist, and he said, look, you get your table of p-values, it tells you. It tells you what the data mean. And I said, no, no, you're interpreting that table. You're always interpreting it. It's not just qualitative researchers who interpret. And he banged on and banged on and wouldn't shift. And in the end, I said, well, why do you need a discussion section then? He said, well, it's just to summarize. He wouldn't shift. Um, there was a recent paper that just came out, and I think Madden America summarized it. This a couple of weeks ago, in where somebody's writing that the side disciplines are should, should not even be doing hypothesis testing. And given how much we know about the replication crisis in psychology and that we're not able to replicate our most fam- famous and basic findings, maybe uh, maybe it's time to revisit what, what we call research in the first place, which, which takes me to our next question, because you've written about this, right? What would a very different way of doing research look like to you? How would you do it? How would you change it? First of all, I do a lot of a lot of conceptual work, like these ideas of individuals and what does it actually mean. Um, so I sat in on a seminar, critical theory, psychiatry, um, and they were all bandying around this word individualism. And I thought, what do you mean by it? And nobody could answer. Yeah, well, what I mean by it is the kinds of thing I was talking about that a complaint is paranoia. You know, a complaint is not a complaint about something in the environment that is real. It's a symptom. So I would, first of all, be looking to shift the spotlight onto people's conditions of existence and develop a theory of what is it that drives people mad, assuming there is such a thing as madness. Because I know some people think there isn't. Well, I do, because I've had it. Um, what are the conditions and what are the conditions that sustain it you know because some people have one psychotic break and that's it other people get sucked into the system and they're there for life 
So I think all that work has to be done. Um, as to methods, first of all, I think we have to consult much more with the community and with activists. So what makes sense in terms of your life for us to understand it and be able to compare and contrast and pull out maybe things that are in common and things that are are different. And I would use methods just off the top of my head, participatory research, I don't quite a bit of that, ethnography, photo voice, experience something, video diaries, um, those kinds of things where people are talking about their lives rather than their illness. Uh, actually, I would take mental health out of health. But it's just not the same. And I think mental so-called health, it's a crisis of living. It's an interruption. It's a crisis of living. And you have to address people's conditions of life if you're going to support them out of it. But we don't have a discourse. That's another part of epistemic injustice. There's a so-called hermeneutic gap. We don't have a style of thought to use that for Gordian term, to articulate what it is that's happened to us and why it's happened to us. So what are the dangers of conflating like mental distress, let's say, or a crisis of living and calling it a health issue? I think the individualization is part of the medicalization of, of mental health, the stripping of people from their, their context, the overused and underspecified word. It needs to be placed in its conditions of existence. Let's move on to your ECT research. This is the systematic review in 2003, and you already talked about it. Uh, and it was about patient perception of ECT, electroconvulsive treatment therapy. Could you tell us two things? Uh, one is, you know, what did you find in this piece of research and the effect it had? Because it was kind of a big deal. And second, a little bit more about your experience of being a part of this research, because you've written about that too. So what we decided to do was compare peer-reviewed articles we found 29 articles written by services or user groups or in collaboration with them. And we looked at perceived benefit, memory loss, information, consent, and emotional trauma. And we had a reference group of people mostly who had shock treatment. The steering group insisted we have a proper qualitative researcher, even though my PhD was in qualitative research. We found that there was a vast discrepancy in reported benefit between mainstream papers and the papers that were produced by, by user groups. But when it came to memory loss and information, actually, the survivor papers and the mainstream papers reported the same proportion of people saying they had long-term memory loss or didn't have enough information but they interpreted them differently. So when it came to information, the mainstream papers reported the data, and it was high. It was like 60% on average said they didn't have enough information, but they just didn't discuss it. They were completely silent. When it came to long-term memory loss, which the Sykes always said didn't happen, but our reference group said did happen, 
the mainstream papers said it was because of the depression, whereas the survivor paper said it was because of the ECT. Um, so you get the same raw data, but different interpretations, harking back to the data speaks for itself stuff. But the other thing was about was about publishing this work because we were offered publication in a very high-profile journal at the British Medical Journal, the PMJ. But they said, they, oh, we also gathered testimonies, first-hand accounts of people who'd received ECT from the internet, but which was very basic in 2001. And they didn't, and we analyzed them qualitatively. And they were very important because the testimony supported the survival papers. But the BMJ didn't want the testimonies. Now, to give them their due, they accepted the survival papers, even though they weren't peer-reviewed. They were great literature. They would accept that, but not qualitative analysis, which was really bad. And they insisted that the title be patients' perspective on ECT. Patients. So we argued. And they argued back, and we argued some more, and they argued back, and we gave in. Because everybody said, you know, it's such a high-profile journal. You've got to publish in it. But it did have a certain effects, right, when it came to ECT. How was the paper received and everything? Some people tried to take it to pieces. People tried various ways of ameliorating memory loss like giving people ketamine at the same time as the anesthetic. Some people supported it. It was very mixed. If you look at the RC, the Royal College of Psychiatrists website now, their pages on ECT, they don't mention us. They say some patients and some user groups say that ECT causes permanent damage. The word research does not appear. That is interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a big omission. Not some, not some research suggests, but some patients and some, okay. So I can't believe they didn't know about what we did. It got so much publicity, but that's how it stands now. It's the opinion of a user group. The number of people who received ECT, I'm not saying this is because of us. Um, the number of people who received ECT in the UK has dropped from 11,000 a year to 2,000 a year. I'm not saying I'm not saying we're responsible for that. Um, and some people are very cross because they think it's a good treatment. So um you've written about this in the current political and social landscape in the UK, uh, austerity measures have been introduced. But my my I was wondering how like how psychology, what place psychology has played in the execution and in making these austerity measures le- legitimate, right? So there's a very good paper um, by Lynn Friedley and Robert Stern, and they use the term psychocompulsion. So in the welfare benefit system, there's a regime of conditionality. There are certain things you have to do. If you don't do them, you lose your money. So we're saying like, we always thought only meds could be delivered by coercion. but, But one of the things that you have to do if you're in a certain group is attend, well, basically it's CBT, be made work ready. Unemployment has become a condition to be treated by CBT. 
And it's psychologists are in what we call job centers, which is where unemployed people go. Um, and you have to show up for your CBT session every week for I don't know how long, 10 weeks, 12 weeks. Um, and if you don't show up, your benefits are stopped. And that is psychologists conniving with the regime of austerity, supporting it, making it legitimate, supporting the horrible narrative of scroungers, not strivers. I, I, I mean, there is resistance to it, but it's very difficult because if you're too vocal or if you're too active, then you might be seen as fit for work and lose your benefits. So there are a couple of groups in, in the UK. Um, one of them I know very well, uh, Recovery in the Bin. And they do a lot of work helping people navigate the this system and training. And they're very against the whole recovery thing. And then there's the Mental Health Resistance Network. And there are lots of, and there's shit, there are loads that I don't know. These are just ones I happen to know. All right. Uh, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.